Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. If you're having some issues, if you're struggling with happiness or achieving your goals, whether you're dealing with depression, stress, anxiety, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, whatever it is, BetterHelp Online Counseling is a convenient, professional, affordable option. Best of all, you don't have to wait in a waiting room or sit in traffic. Everything you share is confidential. You can change therapists if need be for free. It's easy. Best of all, you get 10% off of your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash other P-P-L. Go get 10% off, BetterHelp.com slash other P-P-L, all right? Okay. I guess we can't draw from the logic. We have to lose and have to assemble what the logic tells us. All right. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm talking to you from... Los Angeles, California. I hope you're okay. I hope you're hanging in there two weeks until the election. I hope you vote. Make a plan to do that. Get that done if you haven't done it already. Participate in your democracy. Anne Helen Peterson is my guest today. She is the author of a book called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And it is also the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The Nervous Breakdown Book Club is a monthly book club. For more information on that, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and uh, click on Book Club in the menu bar. Anne Helen Peterson is a former senior culture writer for BuzzFeed. She now writes a newsletter called Culture Study as a full-time venture on Substack. She received her Ph.D., from the University of Texas at Austin, where she focused on the history of celebrity gossip. So just a very interesting book and a very interesting conversation with Anne Helen Peterson. Again, it is called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And, you know, speaking of burnout, I don't know if anybody else has been noticing this, but I have been just kind of working at half speed lately and I don't know like I want to say it has something to do with daylight and how it's getting darker or it's getting dark earlier and the sun is coming up closer to 7 a.m. and so everything just feels like uh 
built for hibernation. I feel like hibernating is what I'm telling you. I feel burned out and I'm not even a millennial. I'm towards the, you know, the back end of uh, generation X and I too am feeling burned out. I think we're all feeling some burnout. I think we, we should be feeling some burnout. Should we not? I feel like, you know, many months into this pandemic, four years into the Trump presidency, this election cycle, the intensity of it, uh, like, you know, like it's not uh, abnormal to be feeling some fatigue. So having said that, whether you're a, a millennial and you're burned out or you're a baby boomer or a Gen Z or whatever you are, I think that this conversation uh, will offer you some insight into how people are feeling these days and how our culture has organized itself. Not only lately, but, uh, you know, in our recent history. So just a very fascinating conversation, and I'm happy to share it with you now. Here she is, folks. This is Anne Helen Peterson, and her new book, One More Time, is called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. So I, uh, I burnt out. <laughs> That's the short answer. But I refuse to recognize it as burnout. I, uh, I had really been struggling, I think, for, for several months. This is after the midterm elections in 2018. Like a lot of other journalists, I felt like, oh, well, here's what I can do. I can throw myself into coverage of the midterms, like, you know, explicit coverage of, of races, but also just like I did a big piece on disenfranchisement on the Navajo Nation, like those sorts of pieces that are just trying to get to some of our larger societal problems. And was just reporting at a full tilt. And that also included like, uh, I was on quasi vacation and then got a phone call that there had been a shooting in Sutherland Springs and would I drive an hour to go coverage it, cover it. And it was, you know, a mass shooting, incredibly, incredibly tragic. And I flew from there to go uh, hang out in Southern Utah for a week in a town uh, that used to be run by polygamist Mormons and that a bunch of the women who had escaped the cult had come back and tried to reclaim the town as their own. So that's like just a lot of emotional, <laughs> emotional taxing. And I, you know, post-election, I would call my editors or I'd like file a piece and they would give me some corrections or say, this isn't quite working. And I would just like start crying, which was not my usual uh, MO. Like that was not how I usually responded to edits. And my my editor said, I think you're a little burnt out. You should take some time. And I was so frustrated because I had taken like three days before Thanksgiving. I thought that that was a good, you know, a good break. And I had like had a massage and done a facial, like had a facial and uh, still it, it wasn't fixing anything. I still felt this incredible frustration and, and uh, bone deep tiredness and what I realized as I tried to unpack what I was experiencing, because I was like, I'm not burnt out. Like, how dare you? I just can't do my errands. Like, that was what I had diagnosed what was wrong with me was that I couldn't get the stuff done that was on my to-do list. And as I started trying to research what was happening, because I was like, I'll write a piece about my errand paralysis. It's like, oh, yeah, the reason why you can't get these simple things done is because you're burnt out. And the problem was that I didn't recognize it is burnout because I had always thought that burnout was like something that happened to, you know, 
foreign correspondents, war correspondents, people, doctors, social workers, people who are working in things that we really readily acknowledge as incredibly psychologically taxing. And so this was very different. Um, and the way I tried to really think of, okay, if I'm burnt out, where did that burnout come from? It came from working all the time. And where did that ideology of needing to work all the time come from? That required tracing back into my past a while. And it became clear to me that it wasn't just something that I was dealing with. It was something that a lot of my peers were dealing with. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so in your research, which I imagine was pretty substantive, like your book feels really well researched. I can't imagine you had all of this information at your fingertips or like <laughs> packed into your brain. You know, you had to go off and investigate. But I did. In that process, did you come across like really well defined symptoms? of burnout? Like what, like, do we have like a definition of what it is and what it looks like so that people out there listening might be able to understand if they are, if they too are burned out? Like I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, like maybe I'm burned out. <laughs> well, so the world health organization, they, they limit it to the description of exhaustion and in, incapacitation that is exclusively to do with the workplace. And I think that it's significant that that is coming from the World Health Organization, because I think, you know, other places in the world, there is a much clearer delineation between work and non-work spheres of our lives. Um, and in America, that's just not the case. Like work seeps into all components of our lives and our our hustle, our, our need to be productive and efficient in all these corners of our lives like that. That is not just from in working hours. So the way that I think of it and expand upon the, the technical World Health Organization definition is that feeling that like you're working so hard, you're, you're running on all cylinders, you hit the wall, right? You get to the point where you think I cannot work anymore. And then instead of stopping, you scale the wall and then you just keep going. And so that feeling of exhaustion, that feeling that you know your life has turned into an endless to-do list and that all the highs and all the lows have just flattened into just things that you have to complete, tasks to complete, that work has seeped into all corners of your life. And even though it is sometimes gratifying, it is mostly just there. That, that feeling that it's like the background noise of everything is just, I'm tired. And you can't really enjoy any accomplishments. Like you're getting yeah. things, you're getting things done, but it doesn't even feel good. There, there's no catharsis, right? So I often compare it to the feeling 
in high school or college when you studied so hard for a big test or for your finals and then you take the final and there's just this like it's over right like that class is over and no matter how you did on it unless you failed it right but like there's just it's it's done the feeling is done and then you would oftentimes after college you know you'd go home and have several weeks of non-academic work. Like some people would have other jobs, but you were not doing that academically or mentally taxing work. So an actual rest. We don't have that anymore. We don't have any form of catharsis in that in that matter. Like even if you finish a big work project, it's still, you know, you're already working on the next one. There's no recovery. And I think that's especially true right now during the pandemic that other like the moments that we've isolated as times of celebration or catharsis or or completion those feel very elusive so you have this burnout you're crying when you get edits from your editors (laughs) (laughs) uh, which i can relate to and uh what did it what happened like i know you went on to write this book obviously but did you have a period where you did decompress did you find a way to actually take care of yourself in between the acute burnout and the moving on to this project? No, (laughs) no. I think what happened is that I, you know, in the process of identifying it, I began to be able to, to confront it a little bit more, right? So to have language to describe what was going on and to be able to see what I call burnout behaviors. So things that I do that, uh, exacerbate my burnout because I'm so tired that I can't like be my best self or make my best choices. So like a a typical burnout behavior is instead of reading the fiction book that I really want to read, that's like on my bedstand, I'll just scroll Instagram for, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm going to go to bed in five minutes. And you will look up and you've been looking at Instagram for 40 minutes. You're like, what is wrong with me? Like, I didn't want to do any of that. That is a typical burnout behavior. Um, so, yeah, I, I just can see it more clearly. And I, I've i never cured it, you know. I think at times in my life when I have fewer things going on, so actually the time when I was writing the book, which was last summer, really devoted to, to researching and writing the book, was actually a pretty low burnout thing because, like, I was very concentrated on one project. Oftentimes what exacerbates burnout is really throwing yourself in so many different directions at once. So for millennials, especially millennial parents, that means throwing yourself towards your job, which takes up a ton of work, but also your, your duties and compulsions as a parent. Okay. So then you start to do research. Uh, I'm curious to know a little bit more about this part of the process. Yeah. When it comes to writing a book like this, you know, it's a pretty heavy lift. You're, you're, you know, explaining it to yourself, but you're obviously also trying to explain it to a general reader. And can you just talk about like, like, where did you start? Where do you, where did you go to, to start building your case for what this is, why this is, and how we might get out of it? You know, for the original article, which came out in January of 2019, I really was just looking at my life and talking to other people about their lives and thinking like, okay, so what happened in the 1990s that like made me think this way? What shifted when I was in graduate school that made me think that like working all the time was good? What, how is that different from people who 
were even five years below me who graduated from high school or from college into the recession. Cause I'm an elder millennial. I was born in 2003 or sorry, born in 1981, graduated from college in 2003. And then for the book, I really shifted to thinking historically. So what were the historical factors that led us to this point of working in this fashion and of, you know, thinking of ourselves at a young age as walking resumes or our parents, some of the decisions our parents made to steer us in that direction. And so that involved a lot of, you know, reading a lot of economic history, reading a lot of parenting history and childbearing history, um, thinking a lot about the the various cultural forces that shaped the boomers over the course of the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, I'm a cultural historian. That's how I was trained. I have a PhD in media studies. So for me, it's it's pretty natural. I find a couple of books that really are focused on some of the ideas that I want to think through. And then you look in the bibliographies of those and you find more books and it just kind of spreads out like a big old cloud. Um, it's never a problem for me to find more books to read about the subject that I'm trying to research. No, I mean, it's I, I appreciate that little insight, you know, because I think sometimes when people are reading a book like yours that's doing all this uh, work, you know, and is is kind of uh, painting on a broad canvas can be like, how, like, where do you even begin? And right. it's like, you pick up a couple of books and you look in the bibliography. <laughs> yeah. It's like a breadcrumb. Yeah. It's like a breadcrumb trail. Well, and you know, sometimes like I would ask Twitter, I have a great Twitter following that is fantastic for all sorts of recommendations. You know, they're, they're great at telling me how to stain my deck. And they're also great at telling me, you know, what books, I, cultural history of boomers books I should read. And so it was a great collection of stuff that was written really as boomers were trying to figure out their identity in the 1970s and 80s. So more historical excavation in that terms of like, it came like books that came out in 1985. And then more recent stuff by academics. So there's a great dissertation that hasn't been turned into a book yet by someone at Princeton that's basically all about yuppies in the early 80s. So being able to be directed to to both of those sorts of things was really useful to me. Let's talk about boomers. Your book, you know, like as you just said, goes into the history. I think when we think of the uh, public conversation around generational concerns, the common dichotomy is millennials versus boomers. Yeah. I'm a uh, generation X. We never get talked about. We're just sort of, that's not true. You're going to be, that's <laughs> because your kids aren't grown up yet. Um, I think Gen X, like there is a really interesting dynamic between Gen X and Gen Z that is going to be fascinating. It's just, you know, like you're not old enough that you are, uh, dominating voting roles yet because you're not retired yet <laughs> retired people vote the most right i mean I, I you'll get there i promise yeah i mean i gotta be honest i sort of feel like a lot of what you're talking about with respect to millennials rings true for me i'm i was born in 1975 so i guess i'm a the towards the tail end of generation x yeah um but i've always felt an affinity with millennials i also sort of bristle at these like the, the oversimplification of people by like kind of grouping them into these. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. Like I, you know, just because someone was born in 1977 or 1975 doesn't mean they're also experiencing a lot of the things as someone born in 1981. Right. right? Like have... they are pre pretty arbitrary. 
Um, but I do think the timing, the arrival into the workforce is a significant one. So like, I think I have more in common with people who are classic millennials, like people who are right in the middle of millennial, because I entered into the workplace later than my peers because I was in graduate school for so long. What are the years for a millennial? Like, how does it technically? 1980 to 81 kind of differs depending on which source you're looking at through 1995 through 1995 okay and then what the 65 through 80 is gen x is that it i think so yeah well and i think micro generations are actually pretty useful in terms of describing things so one that's used to describe uh like 1977 to 1981 or 82 is the oregon trail generation so it's referring to like kids who grew up with a very specific, like with Apple IIe computers, because that puts you on a very kind of specific trajectory towards a relationship with technology. So most of the people in that generation, including myself, didn't have cell phones until after college. So think of how that changes yeah, your understanding of like how, how you made friends, how like you socialized, how you communicated, how you thought of personal availability, all that sort of thing. Yeah, no, it has a huge impact. So just to continue with my um, original thought or question, I, I want to hear you speak a little bit about, um, you know, millennial burnout as it pertains to uh, the baby boomers. I think all of us, I feel like we've been living in the world that the baby boomers created yeah. for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone in sensing that, but yeah. what, like, tell me about the boomers. What did you learn about baby boomers and, you know, the way that they raised their kids and how it might have led to this like widespread feeling of burnout, how it might have led to the widespread inequities in our uh, economic system you know, there's a lot to unpack, obviously, but can you just kind of talk in some broad strokes about the boomer experience and then, you know, the ways in which it has manifested to create our present circumstances? Yeah, you know, I, it's anathema for me as a millennial to say this, but I think I, I actually have some sympathy for boomers um, just by by looking at the some of the similarities between our generations, just in terms of Boomers, you know, as the children of the greatest generation, many of them were reared in houses that had gained middle class status for the first time post World War II. Right? So the the combination of the post war economy, the GI Bill, uh, robust protection for unions, like all sorts of different economic intersections, made this period, this like twenty year period. It's sometimes referred to as the golden age of American capitalism. Which is what, 45 through 65? It's generally a little bit, it's more like 1950 through around like 1970 to 1974. Some people like think of the the end of that bubble is 1974 because the oil crisis. Um, it's just long enough that if you grew up in it, you didn't know anything else, right? You're like middle-class lifestyle is a lifestyle for me. And also your parents probably who had you know, as the greatest generations had gone through the deprivations of the depression and World War Two. And here they are finally, they're like, okay, we we arrived at this place of middle class stability. So you as a boomer entering the workplace, the workplace is starting to collapse just as you enter it. And you're like, how can I maintain this middle class lifestyle that my parents fought for so hard? 
So there were all sorts of strategies that boomers adopted in order to maintain that lifestyle. So one strategy is called the yuppie strategy, which is essentially like find whatever job pays the most, right? And I think there's similarities between the yuppie strategy and some like uh, second generation immigrant strategy. It's like, how do I find the, the degree that is going to give me the most financial stability that I can then pass on to my kids? Um, and then there were also strategies like voting for Reagan, <laughs> right? Which, uh, and, and endorsing a lot of the ideas that it accompanied Reaganism, which is the idea that like, okay, so we can cut all of, can cut our taxes if we also cut funding to things like state institutions for education, right? And instead of uh, having these robust safety nets that have provided for a lot of people and made life more stable in general, maybe if we cut taxes, then the economy will get stronger and I personally will benefit from that. So, you know, like personally, in hindsight, it's hard to look at those decisions and be like, how did you vote for this? How did you basically decide to like take the ladder up from underneath you? Like boomers inherited this solid middle class existence and then they decided we're going to take away all the things that would ensure that for future generations. But I think a lot of those decisions were made out of the desire to maintain that middle class stability for themselves and for their kids. So you can, you know, psychologize that, but it makes more sense when you think about, oh, they were also dealing with middle class precarity and made or the desire to finally arrive in the middle class because not everyone obviously was part of the middle class during this period. So there were people who still were struggling to, to get that sort of stability. So a lot of decisions about parenting, about politics, that sort of thing were made in with that search for stability, that maintenance of stability in mind. So let's talk about, uh, college because I think one of the things that, um, we often hear about in the context of millennials and economic inequality and difficulty is uh, college debt. And yeah. I grew up in a household where it was never even a question that we were going to college. Like my dad was the first in his family to go to college and it was just such a big deal for him yep. to be educated and that we all go. So I just grew up like, I can't remember ever thinking anything else. I would just go to college after I finished high school. Right. And then you have, and, and, you know, it's worth flagging that my dad, who came from a very working class, like very working class household, you know, went to college at a time when his very working class parents could put him through college for a pittance right. Right. Uh, to a state university. And yep. now, of course, we talk about millennials and all we hear about is college debt and how you have all these young people coming out, entering like a blighted workforce for the same or for the first time. And they're under the weight of this incredible debt, yeah. um, which is, you know, I don't know. There's something deeply immoral about that in my view. So can you just talk about the, the ways in which millennials grew up thinking about college? Was it similar to what I just described different? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think the situation that you describe is so common amongst millennials where one of your parents was the first in their family to go to college. Maybe not both went to, you know, and I know a lot of millennials who were the first in their generation to go to college, right? So for those people too, I think college was one of those things amongst, um, amidst that instability of the, the 80s, that, that grasp to either sustain or obtain middle-class status. 
college was posited as a real, like, a solution. If you can just get into college, a good college, then you will be on your route, on the way to stability. And this is, I think, especially true if you, if um, the boomer parents were maybe in one of the the trades or like fields that had destabilized over the course of the seventies and eighties. So like the classic example is like an auto worker, right? Who auto workers could have this very stable middle-class lifestyle through over the course of the, you know, fifties, sixties, seventies. And that began to disappear both with globalization and uh, the undercutting of unions. Like you just couldn't have that anymore. So if you're an auto worker and you're looking at your kids growing up, you're not like, Hey, you can go and have this auto working job or the other example in my hometown in Idaho, you know, a lot of people had middle-class existence by working for the timber farm or the timber factory is a, is a pulp mill um, and working in the timber industry just generally the unions were undercut by right to work in the 1980s and the the timber industry just generally was threatened in many complex different ways. So if you're a timber worker, you're not going to be like, okay, I want my son or my daughter to know how to do this. I want them to go to the University of Idaho. And even when I was going to college, I think like uh, some state schools, depending on where you are, are still somewhat affordable through a combination of grants and, and, and small loans with parents and small student loans. But a lot of places, um, state schools, even if you are working through college, right, they are, you have to take on significant amounts of debt in order to get through. And then you don't have that assurance. You don't have that stability that was promised to you. And I think that uh, there is a questioning right now of what's known as the education gospel, basically that idea that some like the more people that go to college, the better college at any cost is always great. Right. And then the amount of student debt is undercutting that philosophy. So is the amount of student debt that has been piled onto people who have not finished their degrees or who have uh, been swindled, essentially, by for-profit colleges that have preyed upon that idea that like, if you can just get a college degree from us, we'll let you in, you know, like we'll give you this money, but it's private loans, which are incredibly exploitative oftentimes. And so you have a, a degree or not even a degree that's not necessarily worth much and huge mountains of debt that you can't put a dent in. Yeah. I, I, I want to say like, I have been rethinking cause I grew up with that sort of uh, hammered into my head, you know, college, any cost college is the way, blah, blah, blah. And I think that especially as somebody who has a film degree and a master's in creative writing <laughs> and who has worked as an adjunct as a college instructor, I, I know firsthand these are for-profit businesses yep. and that they are cashing in on the backs of students uh, who often can't afford to go there and it's it's wrong and i don't like i i'm a little bit hesitant to say like you know what college might not be necessary but the truth is it might not be i think education yeah. is great but there are different ways to get educated uh, for somebody who wants to work as a journalist or a, a author or um i don't know anything to do with the arts really there's there are certainly ways to self-educate that are just as good and that don't cost 150 grand or whatever it comes out to. 
Absolutely. Well, and two of my favorite journalists at BuzzFeed, I, one of the things I loved about working at BuzzFeed is there was just no, if, either you created good stuff and did good reporting or you didn't, there was no like compunction around like, oh, did you go to Yale or did you have this internship, whatever. So two of my favorite reporters there didn't go to college. They were just good, right? Like that's that's all that mattered. And I think I love what you said about there are so many different ways to get an education. I just think that where I grew up again in Idaho, there was this idea that somehow when you graduated from high school, you would go to not just University of Idaho, there's also the local college that was much cheaper, but still a fair chunk of change if you're not making much money. And people would start and then take out the loans. And then, you know, about half a semester in, be like, this isn't for me. I shouldn't be here. I don't care. I don't want to be here. Like, I want to go do this other thing, or I'm not ready to do this yet. But that that pipeline from high school to college that somehow this is the right thing, the necessary thing that you do, it's so standardized. And it's also so like middle class bourgeois that like, of course, you would go to college. And that like somehow going to trade school is looked down upon as less than in some capacity when, if anything, a trade, a trade certification or an apprenticeship or something like that's actually a, a road to much more stability. I was just going to say, and this brings me to my, <laughs> this brings me to my next line of questioning. And you, you write about this very well in the book and it, it really resonates with me because one of the greatest and most difficult and painful awakenings that I've had in my own life, uh, professionally is the complete bullshit at the heart of this idea that if you do what you love, <laughs> money will follow. And, you know, a little bit of personal history, like this is something my parents told me yeah. um, in the most well-intentioned possible way. They want me to be happy. They want me to realize my dreams like any parent wants their child to realize their dreams. But it was like, you know, whatever you're passionate about and interested in, like that's what you should study in college. I remember yep. I did like my dad, like bless him. He is like such a good dad. He like had us do the Myers-Briggs test when we were in high school <laughs> to like help us figure out what we were interested in. And I, I distinctly remember like for all of my cynical airs and like, you know, teenage know-it-allism and stuff, like I was actually a kid who really did trust the elders in his life. And for good reason, I knew they had my best intentions in their heart. But I remember taking that test and I remember some guy going over it with me and being like, so you've got some Steven Spielberg in you and like, you know, <laughs> you're a creative and like, you know, telling me all this shit about myself. And then I go off to college and I majored in film studies because I was like, well, right. that's, that sounds like fun. I'm passionate about storytelling or whatever. Yep. And, you know, so I follow that track and then you get out into the world and it's like, oh, shit, like this is really hard to turn into a stable income. And you learn these lessons the very hard way. And I think, you know, you reference Cal Newport and his work. You actually, I should say, reference a lot of books that I've read or am aware of. Like, I'm, it's just interesting. That there's a sort of like crossing of uh, lines or something uh, between like what is at the heart of your book and what feels like it's been sort of in the air around me over the past yeah. decade. Yeah. Um, but Cal Newport wrote this book called, well, like, So Good They Can't Ignore You, I think is one of them. Mm. And it's basically like a complete um, repudiation of this whole do what you love and the money will follow idea. It's like more like 
get some valuable skills and develop them. And that will lead to, you know, uh, income and financial stability. And then eventually like out of, as an outgrowth of that income and stability and growth, you'll be able to gain freedom. You know what I'm saying? And like, yeah, he does some very compelling case studies. There's a little bit of a, it's like, there's like a hardcore austerity kind of in his approach. He's also yeah. like, doesn't go on social media or use a smartphone. I know. Well, he, I mean, yeah, he, he is disciplined in a way with, I am deeply unfamiliar with. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I am so torn about these ideas because I do think that there is value to having this time, like this collegiate time where you are able to like live the life of the mind. Right. Like that is an incredible privilege to go and major in, you know, like my, I went to a small liberal arts college and my friends and I, like I was a film studies major. My best friend was an art history major. My other best friend was a Spanish major, art major. None of us are doing those things related to that field per se, but what our college experience did was teach us how to think. Right. Right. And I think that that's, that's a hard it is a hard thing to think about like, oh, should I just like everyone should just major in econ, right? I, like, or get a, a business degree so that you have those hard skills and then you have no one who knows how to think necessarily in in this other way. But I, I also don't want to like reinscribe these sort of privileged notions of like, okay, well, if you have money, if you have the money to take out, like now the school that I went to costs, I think $65,000 a year. What school did you time. go to? Whitman College. It's in Walla Walla, Washington. Oh yeah. Um, at the time it was thirty thousand, um, and I had scholarship and that sort of thing. But like, so if if you have the wherewithal, either through family money or the ability, like the <laughs> the risk <laughs> the risk capacity to take on loans, then you can live the life of the mind. But if you don't, like, oh, sorry, you're just a poor person who doesn't get to think thoughts, right? I do think there are other ways that we, like people historically before the private liberal arts college figured out ways to find corners of their mind. Like we, people still had vibrant mental lives, psychological lives. And what it was is that if you were working a job that only actually took nine to five, you still had the, like the vaunted, you know, the, the labor cry used to be eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours to do what you will. You had those eight hours to do what you will, to do all these things, right? To to read books, to participate in conversation, to be part of organizations that have completely been lost because we are doing what we love, in quotes, all the time. There's no room for anything else. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? You mean because we're always so hyper-connected and on our phones and stuff, we never leave work or? Well, lovable work spreads into all corners of your lives, of your life. Right. So like I am doing lovable work and that I'm a writer, but it is it is constant, constant work. It is just like every single quarter of my life is somehow connected to this larger project. And so that doesn't mean it, it makes it harder to cordon off those corners. The other thing, too, is that oftentimes people who are doing lovable work are doing it for very little pay. So they have to take on extra jobs in order to supplement that other work, whether it's like a side hustle, like monetizing their knit shop or 
something like driving for Uber or renting out a bedroom on Airbnb, all that sort of thing. So there's there's these other forms of work that take up that space. And also the lovable work becomes incredibly less lovable when you monetize it. Yeah, right. Suddenly, <laughs> what is it? it just takes the fun out of it in some ways. Yeah. Um, but what about, I want you to, I know you don't have kids, right? You say no. this in your book, but I want you yeah. to tell me how to raise mine. Um, I am probably to, to my and their detriment, like incredibly resistant to reading books about parenthood. I, <laughs> I just don't want, it'll just drive me crazy because there's all yeah. these different takes and it just, I'll wind up getting obsessed with it and I'll start thinking, you know, it, I just feel like keep it simple, yeah. lo- love your kids, pay attention to them, spend time with them pay attention to what interests them and try to encourage and help create opportunities for them to explore those things further. Don't be super ideological. Don't try to hammer ideology into their head when they're soft and impressionable and let them figure things out on their own as much as, you know, is healthy. You know, I don't want to, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to give them like an endless leash, but I do want them to be able to sort themselves out on their own as they get older and mature. How old are they? Uh, 10 and five. Oh, nice. So, like having done all this research and talked to all these people and viewed things deeply through a historical lens. Um, what do you think parents should be telling their children, you know, young children today? And how would you like, what, what does good parenting look like around all this stuff? Well, I think there's two things. One is a, a lot of our attitudes towards work. Many of the people that I spoke with, internalize the idea about like how much work they should be doing very young and they did it by watching their parents right so if their parents were working all the time and like that was what was necessary to maintain a certain lifestyle you know i i never wanted to become a doctor because my dad who's a family physician would have to be on call and that to me i was like why would i want to have to work on the weekends and the, the evenings. But I think I internalized some of the wrong, the wrong uh, message from that. Cause I was like, I don't want a job that will have me officially working on those times. So I'm just going to take something where I can just unofficially be working on all those times, whether that was as an academic or then uh, now as a writer. Uh, but the other one too, is that I think just parent less, like spend less time parenting. Yeah. And and that is very difficult, I think, especially for bourgeois parents to understand is there's just this idea, just like more work is better. There's an idea that more parenting is better. So whether that's in terms of more activities, like more, this is a big thing in, in motherhood parenting circles, like creating more magical experiences <laughs> or uh, just supervision, like super supervatory hours, like times when you are trying to structure the time for your kids in some way. And that can be anything from a play date to an actual like activity pre or post COVID, something that you bring the kid to and have them do. So much of what people told me nurtured their creativity was being bored, yeah. was having nothing to do just like vast sprawling unscheduled time and that because that's hard for us as adults to understand it is also hard for us to give our kid there's a feeling that like oh somehow my kid is missing out because I don't have them involved in these activities and it's hard too because oftentimes the kids want to be involved in this many activities because of peer pressure so how do you balance their desire to want to do these things with their friends 
with the desire to um, keep them kind of unscheduled and unstructured. I, I, I like what you're saying. It's making me feel a little bit better about myself because I think I'm often advocating like to my wife, I'm just like, we got to slow down. These kids are doing too much. Like, like yeah. I want them to, to have some activities. Like, you know, if, if my daughter's interested in musical theater, like let's definitely give her opportunities. But like, there are these parents who are like, they have to learn an instrument and they have to speak a foreign language and they have to yep. do, you know, it's like all of those things, there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But if every minute of every day of your kids' lives are hyper-scheduled, they are going to burn out. Yeah, and for I, sure. And, I, you know, frankly, I see it. Um, I've seen it weirdly with regard to COVID, you know, like when we've moved away from in-person schooling to at-home schooling, and especially with my son who's disabled, um, all of his therapy appointments got moved home. And, pri you know, prior to this, he was going to school and then being trucked across town to a physical therapy appointment and then trucked across town to a hippotherapy appointment and then trucked across town to an occupational or a speech therapy and yeah. the kid would come home and just like be, you know, wiped out. And yeah. strangely, I feel like he might be making some physical leaps during COVID or at least maybe that's, yeah. that's the optimist in me is hoping that that's what's happening. And, um, you know, likewise with my daughter, you know, there's some kind of like equilibrium that I sense in her or like less fatigue that I sense in her not having to go to campus or school yeah. or whatever every day. So I hear you. And I think, I don't know, this is making me feel better about myself and what others might perceive as like lethargy or like not active enough parenting. <laughs> no, no, less parenting, less. Yeah. I... <laughs> and I also think there's this inclination. So many people told me this too, that whatever you do, you need to like somehow be really good at it, right? Like, if you do soccer, you need to be on the elite team. If you do musical theater, you need to do all the plays, right? Like you need to like be really good on it at it so that it can be an impressive line on your resume. And what that leads people to in adulthood, millennial after millennial told me this, is that they have no idea how to do a hobby because their only conception of how to do something in their spare time was to try to be the best at it. That's so sad. And, uh, That's so it's sad. It's so sad. And so when people say to me, they're like, "What? How do I? How do I get a hobby?" And I say, "Find something that you can be really bad at, and that you don't care about ever taking an Instagram of, right? Like it's just something for you exclusively." And that is so hard for them to think of. And but it, it's necessary. And so, like you know, I played piano for twelve years when I was a kid. I wasn't ever the best. But I liked playing, right? Like that was my mom said, as long as you continue to like playing, we'll still do this. Do you still play? No, <laughs> I wish I did. But that is like a great, it's actually a great intersection of millennial uh, like difficulties is that I want a piano, right? But I moved around so much in my life, both through my academic life and then in my post-academic life as a writer that like I couldn't cart a piano around with me are you kidding me like get a I can't Casio even, like... get a keyboard get a Casio I keyboard. cannot <laughs> play on a keyboard um so like that is one of my goals is to get my grandmother's piano which is at my mom's house but it's like a big to do but that will be something that will be really nourishing to me Okay, so there are a couple chapters in your book that I want to call out by name because I like the the names of these chapters <laughs> Uh, chapter five, how work got so shitty. And chapter six, how work stays so shitty. 
And, you know, you touched upon uh, stuff along these lines just a minute ago. You know, when you're talking about, um, like, I guess the, the thing that's popping to mind is the way in which jobs are uh, titled these days, especially jobs yeah. like working at BuzzFeed or writing for Vice or working for HBO or any of these sort of like fancy media jobs that everybody wants. Right. And there are, you know, from the perspective of these corporations, you know, like an, there's basically an endless pool of applicants from which to draw, yeah. which gives them enormous leverage in terms of how they compensate, because there's going to be somebody out there who will take the job for a song just to be able yeah. to say they work for BuzzFeed or whatever. Right. Um, and then you also have kids who come from enormous privilege who can afford to intern for free for a year while their parents subsidize them, which creates an enormous structural advantage for them in the workplace yep. and boxes out kids from, um, you know, less privileged backgrounds. So, man, there's so much in your book that uh, depresses me to think about. And I, I say this having really enjoyed it, so I don't mean to paint, paint it as some huge bummer. I think this is strong medicine, and I think it's necessary to confront these issues in a real way. And so kudos to you for that. But still, like, I, I find myself feeling really pissed off, and just to, there's a sense of just exhaustion that washes over me when I think about this stuff. Um, so can you talk about – and then, like, the the job titles, like, you know – so many job titles have warrior in them and <laughs> this shit makes me want to just throw myself through a plate glass window. I'm telling you, it's like, it's a, uh, it's the worst uh, to think about it, but there it is. So I know I just threw a lot at you, but can you talk a bit about the modern workplace and how oppressive and exhausting it is and unfair? Well, I will say that all the things you described uh, about, you know, working at a cool job, especially in media, one of the things that has been heartening is all of these places, each place that you know that you brought up <clears throat> and, and many more have been going through unionization efforts right now. And these unions are pushing back not only on things like, you know, unpaid internships, but also just low exploitative salaries. And they are also attempting to fight the prevalence of, you know, uh, permalancers, contractors, people who are brought on as not full-time employees so that they don't have to be paid or treated like actual employees. Or like actual people. Right, right. Like that's the thing about a lot of this freelancification is that it gives permission for the companies to not treat their employees like employees, which is to say they can treat them like robots, like disposable widgets that can be you know, moved from place to place. And I think that that's the real problem right now is that capitalism, when unregulated, and it is largely unregulated in our current moment, and it works for it works for capital. It works for owners. It works for CEOs and shareholders. And that is a very small relative sliver of the population. It does not work for workers. And so I think it can't just be, you know, the, the things that need to change can't just be more robust labor laws for that protect unions. It also has to be legislation that actually addresses the way that the, the workforce has changed, the way that it has, the word that I use in the book and that is, the historian David Wiles is uh, fissured, right? Where you have 
a company and then the company has like all of these different subcontractors that do all of the work and then the subcontractors even subcontract out to other subcontractors and that means that there is no chain of responsibility and so how can we change legislation to to decrease that and to to increase the responsibility of the employer to the employee I'm with you on that. I feel that I've been that I've been that subcontractor many times, yeah. and um, I think I, like what's popping to mind for me too is like this. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I would imagine you are, but this kind of very ballyhooed um, is it a mission statement or a? It's like a document that Netflix created about its philosophy of doing business and how it creates its you know. Uh, it's worker base and pays them very well, but doesn't treat them like a family. Right. You know, that whole notion of like the work family is a family. No, it's like, we're a team, like we're a pro sports team and we're trying to be elite. And on a pro sports team, if you can compete at the highest level, then you stay on the team. And if your performance falls, you get cut. And there's something very brutal yeah, uh, and inhuman about this. But yet it was like, it was clapped for because Netflix is making all this money, right? So it's obviously good because money equals good in our culture. Well, I mean, and that it's not dissimilar to the way that consultants, you know, or, or finance, finance bankers like that, that idea of survival of the fittest is, is very uh, attractive, right? Like it's the whole root of like some of these seminal texts of American capitalism, like Wall Street and Gordon Gecko and that sort of thing, right? Like the more, the better. When sometimes we have to think about the fact that like, actually, okay, so if your company is turning a profit, isn't that just good? Like, do we always have to have unmitigated growth? Why do we feel that compulsion to not just be doing well, but to be doing better and better and better every year? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the, that's the ideology of a cancer cell you know, right. growth right. for the sake of growth. And exactly, I think like one of the central tensions of this moment in human history is that we have that impulse, that capitalistic growth for the sake of growth impulse running up against ecological yep. pushback that if we are going to in any way stave off the worst consequences of climate change, we are going to have to contract. Yep. There's going to have to be a complete reversal in many quarters of this drive to constantly be growing and consuming and getting more and more. And that tension is going to resolve itself one way or the other. And it's either going to resolve itself because human beings come to their senses and do what's necessary to preserve life on the planet and to try to protect our home environment, or the home environment is going to do away with us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's like, yeah. the, that appears to be the stakes yep. that we're up against. And it's like, I, I want to believe that we can come to our senses. Uh, but man, there is a lot of evidence that flies in the face of that. And there are so many people I think who are still in denial yep. about what's happening. It's like, we're all kind of caught in this and it's uh, scary, you know, to think about how many big changes we still need to make and very quickly. Yeah, all of it, right? Like I just, and the, you know, that's the part of the reason that I had this refrain of the book that's like, it doesn't have to be this way. The big realization that we have to have is that it sucks, right? Like that a lot of the systems that we have in place right now suck, but that they do not have to be this way. 
you know, we have other examples in our history and around the world of a society that is oriented differently. And we can do that, right? But it has to, enough people have to realize that that's possible. Okay. So you talked earlier about this sort of quote unquote golden age of American capitalism from 1950, say, to 1975. Yeah. Glad I was born in 1975, right at the very end of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, we call it golden in quotes. I mean, it was golden in some senses, but it wasn't perfect. No, uh, no, not at all. But, you know, if we're looking for new models, like new ways of thinking about this, new ways of orienting our society, especially from an economic perspective that might be more humane and equitable and environmentally sound. Like, did you come across in your research, uh, like any international examples of countries or societies that are doing it better than we are that we might steal some good ideas from? I mean, there's always the classic Scandinavian examples. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> I heard from a lot of people in Denmark when I was thinking about the the division of labor in the home, like they still don't have it figured out, right? There's still gender based inequities, even though they have enforced paternity leave and that sort of thing. Like we, it is still a, an ongoing struggle. But the thing is that they they are trying to deal with it instead of putting their head in the sand and being like, ah. You know, like, I guess, you know, we just live in a white supremacist patriarchy. <laughs> They're actually grappling with some of the realities of of that situation. Or even, you know, I think about like this recent news out of New Zealand uh, that they, you know, plastics are notoriously hard to recycle. And there's all this information now that like no one's been able to recycle plastics for a long time. And the plastic companies have been very specific, like, you know, suppressing information about the difficulty of their actual recycling. And I want to throw up my hands at that, right? Because it's like, I've been working so hard to do my personal work, right? To, to, to sort my recycling every week to try to like, and not use water bottles, but like, whatever. So frustrating. And then I look at New Zealand, who they're like, Oh, well, we're just going to ban those unrecyclable plastics. You just can't use those anymore. So it takes the impetus off of the individual, right? And it just says, no, we're just not going to have these anymore. Yeah. And that's a societal regulation. So I think, you know, there is this built-in suspicion of uh, federal shifts, like any sort of like, uh, you know, what are they called? They call it, there's the worst name for them. Things like basically any sort of thing that you get from the government, whether it's uh, healthcare, a subsidy. Call, yeah, well, not subsidies. It's like they call them entitlement. Not, entitlement, right? That somehow you are entitled if you enjoy one of these things, right? But really, what it is is like we can think of it instead as you are entitled as a citizen of the United States to have this security whether that's medical security, financial security, like all of these different ways that the government can help restitch these safety nets. It's possible. And it's been, you know, there have been times in our history, if you look to the New Deal, where we have made enormous sweeping change that dramatically changed the trajectory of our country. But we have to open ourselves to that possibility. And I think it's possible right now. Yeah, I do. I mean, right now feels like a moment where it could be, especially if Biden wins, like the yep. the opportunity to do something significant that really seriously, truly addresses the pain points 
for yep. the vast majority of American citizens would, I think, be well-received. Like, after we got through all the noise and bullshit and pushback from the usual suspects, I think if you did something that truly made healthcare affordable and accessible <laughs> yeah. uh, without having it be this constant source of stress and worry right. uh, for so right. many of us, people would be thrilled. And, you know, it's also worth saying this is how every Western democracy pretty much does it already. And here yeah. we are lagging behind as the quote unquote greatest nation on earth. And <laughs> it's, a, it's disgraceful. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm feeling more and more radical in my thinking about what needs to be done mostly because of climate, which I still doesn't feel like, I still don't feel like gets talked about enough as the emergency that it is, um, you know, in our, in our national media and in our federal government, you know, our leadership at the federal level, they, they aren't talking about it to the degree that it merits being talked about based on what we're actually facing and, and what my kids and um, their potential kids could be facing. You know, th this is not just like, oh, you know, the coastal areas are going to flood or, I mean, like the, the ripple effect of it all touches everything and it's going to yeah. be massive. And so I just think that like, if you were getting real about that and if that conversation were happening really explicitly and loudly and consistently, then I think that the motivation in the people and hopefully in our leadership to make big and necessary changes would be there to the degree yeah. that it might not be in the absence of such dialogue. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So I don't know, I guess I'm like soapboxing, but it, it worries me. And I think it's tied very much to the concerns of your book. It's tied to like every concern that people yeah. could have. Yeah. I think they're all interwoven for sure. And that hopefully people can take that mantra of it doesn't have to be this way and extend it to thinking about climate as well. So, um, the conclusion of your book, I, I can't help but notice is called burn it down. <laughs> uh, I hear this phrase, you know, a lot in the national dialogue or online or on social media, especially on the left. Like some, there are some quarters of the left that are like fucking burn it down, man. Like it, the system is broken. Both parties suck. Yeah. Like the only way to fix this is to sort of like wreck it. And I resist that. I, I worry about what happens if you wreck it. <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't necessarily automatically mean if you burn it, if you quote unquote burn it down, that like the forces of good are going to um, be able to, you know, enforce their uh, beliefs or, you know, enact their, their beliefs legislatively. It could be the opposite. I worry about more chaos uh, coming from that. Like, where do you stand? Like, do you think this is salvageable through traditional governmental and legislative means or do you think there mm. has to be some sort of revolution in our society in order for things to significantly change mm, i mean i think there can be a political revolution right like i think i read a pretty convincing argument a couple of days ago that 2016 was an aberration not a significant political shift right like just enough things happened to shift us to like make the throw the presidential election towards Trump and people are convinced that it's like, Oh, we are, you know, we are moving towards totalitarianism, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, fascism. Uh, and I, 
I feel pretty convinced you just like again and again looking at like the you know a Republican hasn't won the popular vote since two that like 2004 yeah 2004 and before that it was 1988 right there is the government, and if you look at population trends and voting trends amongst these population, like I think we are, the Overton window is shifting left significantly, and if you do get people in power who are willing to make big changes, even if it will piss people off in the short term, I think it's possible to to reform. You know, I, I Liz Warren gets beat up a lot because she's like I'm a capitalist right and that just means that she's like I think capitalism should work for the worker because I do think that our American ideologies are so deeply ingrained that it would be a huge and perhaps untenable shift to go from our history of capital our, our like the way capitalism is intertwined with a lot of our personal identities to something as radical as as democratic socialism even. Okay, so let me stop, because I think about this all the time. We already have socialism. I know! <laughs> we have socialism, we have a fire department, we have socialism for farmers, we have socialism right? for the big banks when the economy crashed. They got all sorts oh, of government. I No, I totally don't disagree. I'm saying more in terms of like really shifting all of our governmental everything, right? <laughs> I, and I want that to happen. I want it. Like, that is my politics. I used to live in Vermont. I was like, how amazing is it that my senator actually represents my politics? Right. But at the same time, I grew up in Idaho. Like, I know the the capacity for some people for change. I also know, like, my partner's parents, who for the first time in their lives are voting for a Democrat, and their tolerance for change in this given moment. Right. So how do we... How do we acknowledge that while also pushing for big, huge, radically transformative ideas? That's the task that we have moving forward. I have an idea. Okay. I'm, I'm going to pause <laughs> Don't it. Don't call it socialism. No, that's it. That is yeah. my idea. And I, I know. <laughs> I think it's actually the answer. And I've been having conversations because I, you know, I, my politics are progressive. I'm registered as an independent just because I hate joining groups. I think that's, I've always just been registered as an independent. I'm like, I don't know what I am, but I'm not going to join your club, but I'm going to vote the way that I, you know, I like policy. Like if the, I agree with the policies in general, I'll vote for that person. But, um, you know, I think that one of the fundamental flaws of Bernie Sanders was that he called himself a democratic socialist and refused to caucus as a Democrat with the Democrats. I think if you want to create the kind of political revolution that we're talking about that's better for workers and ordinary people you sort of have to do it from within yeah and i've been telling my friends who are maybe like more ideologically left than i am lately because they tend to focus their anger mostly on people who agree with them 80 percent of the time rather than right. training it on the republicans <laughs> right. and trump but i'm like listen i think alexandria ocasio-cortez who is the heir apparent to the Bernie Sanders mantle, you know, the progressive wing of the party. Clearly she's the, the, the star, I think. I think she has internalized those lessons. I don't think yeah. you're going to be seeing her lead with democratic socialism uh, yeah. as her brand. And I don't think you're going to be seeing her go independent uh, because 
it's pretty hard to go independent and refuse to join a club and then turn around and be like, and by the way, I want to be the standard bearer of this club. Like that's just so illogical and such a shooting yourself in the foot thing to do. As much as I agree with Bernie on a lot of domestic uh, issues in particular, like I just felt like strategically as a political matter, it's hard to win power to be able to, you know, actually create and implement these kinds of changes when that's the way that you're going about it. So I honestly think that from a political perspective, the answer is to just not talk about it as democratic socialism, but to just talk yeah. about it as a matter of policy because of course it's popular. Like, like, no, yeah, of course it pull everything pulls so well in that in when you take disarticulate it from socialist politics. And so like, I mean, this happened very, very recently with the Republican party and tea partiers. They are libertarians and constitutionalists. They knew that if they continued to run as libertarians and constitutionalists, nothing would ever happen. So they decided to become Trojan horses within the Republican party and shift it to the right. And it worked marvelously. So, this is what's happening with the with the left, and you know the, the what what Tea Partiers the the words that they adopted they said like we are for liberty we are for conservative values you know just using the same words that many people on the right were already using, but they were just using those words to describe more of their philosophy. So yeah, I think there's a there's a clear roadmap for how people on the left can do it, and they're they're already doing it. Right. Right. I think the Tea Party, too, had a lot of race, like white supremacy in it, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, that's like it's all about white nationalism and xenophobia, for sure. Okay, (laughs) so uh, having written this book, um, do you feel better? I mean, I know you said you're not over your burnout, but having like kind of gone through the process of really seeing these problems and, you know, for what they are and investigating them in a deep way, has it healed you? Like, no. no 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 i feel like i see them you know it's like going to therapy right like you can therapy's never over right you don't ever stop going to therapy really you shouldn't so it's an ongoing process so if the cause of my burnout is like late stage capitalism we're still in late stage capitalism it's not going to go away so until we make some of these larger shifts that's not like it's not going to be a fix i do think that millennials are also kind of psychologically screwed up like we have been living in this ideology and internalizing its precepts for our entire adult lives. You know, I think even Gen X, like you guys had this brief period of time before your thirties, like there was like a bit of Liberty from like the, the surveillance capitalism and all of the social media, like all of these demands on your time. Um, but I think millennials, it's going to take a lot of unlearning and I'm working on it, right? Like, again, like therapy, you don't stop going, like you keep working, but it is an ongoing process. And I think it's false to even suggest that I've fixed it in some way. I'm trying. I've tried to quit social media. I've tried to be like kind of like unusually austere, I guess, in my approach. But so much of me, like so much of my response to a lot of this stuff is just like, fuck it. Just fuck yeah. it all. I fucking hate it all. I fucking hate social media. I mean, and this is how I think in my head, as crude as it might sound. I'm like, I fucking hate social media. I fucking hate job listings that incorporate the words ninja and warrior. <laughs> I fucking hate Slack. I fucking hate office environments. I fucking, you know, like all of it, I don't like. I don't want to be involved in it. And of course, it's hard to 
disentangle yourself from it. It's still, it's like looming there waiting to suck you back in. But man, do I have some antipathy for all of it. I think a lot of us do. Yeah. I want to escape. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do think that (laughs) COVID has, has provided some clarity in that capacity, right? Yeah. I mean, it's been in some ways, I think a lot of people who are able to work like frontline workers, obviously hats off to them and hearts out to them because they're putting themselves on, on, uh, you know, at risk every day. But I think a lot of people who are formerly in office workers who are not, um, you know, might be rethinking the necessity of a lot of what they used to do. I mean, I think that story has been written a lot and I guess maybe a good place to end is to just like ask you like. Like, do you feel, I mean, you sort of talked about this a minute ago, but do you feel good about the election? Do you feel like, you know, as difficult and tumultuous as these times are that they might, are you hopeful that they might lead to a saner approach and a saner, better country and world? Man, I mean, like everyone else, I feel like I can't say anything unless I jinx it, right? Like. I'll knock like on I think wood. I'll... I'm going to knock on wood. Right. <laughs> I think that you know no amount of polling offers assurance and that that certainly I think contributes to some of the burnout, right? If I were secure in the idea that Joe Biden was going to win this election right now, think about how much mental space that would free up in my mind for the next month. Yeah. Think about that. No, it's... Uh, so like that psychological uh heartburn that's mixing method. Me- <laughs> I, I, I'm that, completely with you. I think that's agita, a great way. Yeah. Agita, that's agita's heart too. Anyway, whatever it is, that feeling, that anxiousness is, is with us and making everything worse. Uh, but I think it can't just be Biden, right? It has to be the Senate too. Right. Because I think that's how you push through some, and, and also has to get rid of the filibuster. Like that is how you actually accomplish these changes. So spreading, spreading the, the desire away from just the presidential election and towards our governing bodies is essential, but also makes me feel like that's just like more work to do. Right. Like uh-huh. that needs to, we need all of this stuff to it. All of this stuff needs to happen. There's a but, lot, of, there's a lot on people's minds and on their plates and on their, on their minds, hearts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That is exactly the way it's put it. The cardiac <laughs> health of your mind. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's a completely insane time. And I realize that for, you know, for most of us, that's like stating the obvious, but I think it's so important to just keep repeating, like, this is not normal. This is not normal. Like what we're going through, the fact that this stuff, you know, this, these kinds of behaviors from our president and from our federal government have become normalized is very dangerous and destructive and we got to fix it. And we have a chance, we have a chance to on November 3rd. So I think, you know, everybody vote and vote wisely. <laughs> like, well, and, and, and also in, in line with my errand paralysis and burnout discussion, figure out right now, make sure that you have your voter registry. Like everything is lined up, like make all of that stuff happen right now so that you're not just like holding it inside of you like oh i don't know if my address is correct or i don't know where my polling place is or i don't have a a voting plan like make that voting plan secure in this moment all right well and congratulations this is an excellent book and i think it's a timely book that uh you know like i said earlier is uh it's strong medicine it's something that i think we need to really confront. So kudos to you for a job well done. I hope you get some rest or, you know, some <laughs> relaxation. You know, 
I mean, it sounds like <laughs> what you're, you said earlier before we came on the air that you're out on an island off the coast of Washington. That sounds serene. Yeah, it's 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 peaceful. Good good place to do more work. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Well, baby steps, right? <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, there you have it. That is Anne Helen Peterson. Her new book is called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Anne Helen Peterson on Twitter. Her handle is at Anne Helen. And you can read Culture Study, her online newsletter, over at annhelen.substack.com. Dot com. One more time, the book is called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Go get your copy. Read this book. It is illuminating. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Every single episode of this show is available for free. It's a listener-supported program. If you like the show and you listen regularly and you have the means, you can throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me hear from you. If you want to send a photo of where you listen, that's a thing we do. Listeners send in photos of where they are in space while they're listening. If you want to snap a photo and send it to us, you can email it to me, or you can DM the show on Twitter at otherppl or find us on Instagram. The podcast has its own Instagram. If you want to get some other people gear, that is uh, something you can do. You can get a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, or a tank top. Just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar, and you can peruse the available selections. So, I don't know who's going to be on the show next week. I feel like I should talk to somebody about the election. I don't know what I'm going to do for the election. It feels so momentous. I've tried to stay away from it in terms of guests just to give you guys a break. I mean, do we need another show where somebody's talking about politics? But I do feel some sense of obligation to cover this in the week leading up. So, TBD. Let me think on it. I hope you're not too burned out. I'm kind of burned out. I feel burned out. Do you have any Xanax? 